From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's go switch gears to Big Pharma. Another deal, there's a lot of things I want to talk about here, but this deal came out today. Pfizer potentially looking at a company by the name of Segan. I have no idea what's going on here other than bankers are going to get paid, lawyers are going to get paid. Uh, so I want to break in with Sam Fazelli. He's head of the European Research and Pharma Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. So Sam, talk to us about, what is it, Segan and Pfizer and what's going on there? Yeah, hi, Paul. Um, so I think this is, you know, not a surprise that Pfizer's looking at companies because, you know, they in their four Q results, they had a slide which showed $25 billion of risk-adjusted sales from deals to be done in 2020, 2020, 2030. <laughs> Got that right. Yep. So, you know, and that's a lot of money, risk-adjusted, which means that when you look at a company, their pipeline drugs will have to be taken a notch down. And to get $25 billion with risk-adjusted sales, you need something like, um, I don't know, $30 billion, $35 billion of sales. So the point is um, you know, they need to do big deals. And here, although Seagen is not necessarily a big company today, uh, say $2 or $3 billion of sales, expectations uh, on consensus have it going up to about nine in 2030. So, you know, does Pfizer need to do this? Yes, something like this anyway. Does Pfizer, Pfizer need to do some of the, uh, several of these? Yes, right. it all fits in. You know, Sam, I'm looking at the FA function for Pfizer and it just blows me away, away. And this is obviously a complete COVID call here. You know, this, this company had 40 billion in sales and then in 2021, uh, it doubled. To 80 billion and then you know they had 100 billion in 2022 and then i'm looking at the forecast on the fa function consensus is back down to like 70 billion run right here how does this company pivot from three-year surge in sales and profitability from covid and, and again thank them and, and moderna very very much for the work they did how does this company kind of reset itself in a post-covid world yeah with difficulty paul if you look at the um share price chart, you'll see that it's come back all the way down. Yeah. So basically, they're not getting a huge amount of credit for the cash that they generated because it's very difficult to, um, you know, what is the value of cash at the end of the day? You, it's all going to be down to how good are they going to be in terms of the deals they do. And, and I think a lot of people worry that they might overpay and do deals that perhaps um, look uh, optically nice today, but they don't actually deliver in the long term. So. You know, it, it's much easier to to value and be interested and, and, and have an investment, positive investment view on a company where 
top line is growing organically and then anything they do is in addition to that um but so that, that that's difficult i don't know how you how people get around this subject you can put certain uh, you know numbers in your model that suggest sure if they use the cash right, they can have a great story going forward. Well, Sam, you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, I know you've been covering these pharma companies for decades. You know, how much of the new drugs that come onto market are Pfizer's scientists discovering something in, in their lab versus buying it? Mm, good question. Yeah, so it is a good question. And you know what? Uh, the, the, all pharma companies have pretty much a stated aim. You know, they have very big business development um, teams of trying to get 30 to 40% of their pipelines out uh, sourced externally because they realize that there's a huge amount of innovation that goes on externally. And here's a little statistic. I'm preparing for a presentation in about 10 days time. I looked at the biggest drugs in 2022. Seven out of top 10 were from where? Biotech companies. Yep. They were in license. BioNTech, you know, the Pfizer COVID vaccine came from BioNTech, Moderna's vaccine, uh, Keytruda that Merck has got 22 billion of sales potentially this year or 24 billion. That came from an acquisition of a small biotechy pharma, biopharma company in Europe called Organon. Wait, which ago. one is that, Keytruda? Keytruda, yeah, 24 billion sales. It is a magic drug for cancer. So hopefully you never need it, but if you do and it works in you, uh, it works like magic. It's a, it, it turns your immune system onto the cancer. Priceless. Basically. Yeah, so that's so, why it's doing 24 billion. So that, that, that's interesting. So basically 70% of the big home runs um, were made by third parties, not the big giant pharma conglomerates. No, but, but Matt, they, they did do a lot of the work that got them to market. Of course. Right? That's why but, that's so, why biotech investing, Sam. I mean, it really is not for the faint of heart, right? I mean, it, it this drug works and the stock goes crazy, or it doesn't work and it does the exact opposite. Yeah. So you need to be able to withstand that that risk and also have a proper, correct portfolio approach, and be disciplined. You know, have your rules about what it is you like to invest in and why you invest in them. Stick with them and then stick with them. You know, yeah. when you look at the long term, the best returns come from companies which perhaps wasn't their first drug that got to market. Maybe it was the second or third that really made the difference. By the way, Sam, in terms of M&A, uh, how much of that are we seeing in this high and rising interest rate environment? I would imagine less. On the other hand, th these big companies uh, surely have huge war chests of cash and maybe don't need to finance everything. Yeah, I mean, remember, pharma is massively cash generative. Yep. And, you know, they can pay they can pay equity if needed. Right. Um, so their equity is pretty much not that different to to paying by cash. But of course, um, uh, it depends on the target shareholder. So, yes, you're right. There is there is the calculation is a bit different now, but there's a lot of need. There's about two hundred billion dollars of drug sales that are coming off patent by 2030. Wow. Sam, what's the next biggest, I mean, post-pandemic world, what's the next big area for biotech, do you think, to really make a difference? Oh, I think it has to be, to really make a difference, it would be great if they can get the more and more of the immune system tuned into treating your disease and obviously manage its side effects. And there's a lot of that going on. And of course, there's this gene editing going on. So there's a lot of work there that could help us 
so long as we can get the side effects and their safety risk under control, um, that could really revolutionize medicine. See, Sam goes to these conferences. They're not like the conferences I go in the desert or down in Miami where we play golf and stuff. He goes to these conferences where you actually have to work during the weekend. What's the next conference coming up, Sam? Well, there's one that I'm sad not, sad not to go to on the one hand, um, and that's the uh, American Association for Cancer Research. I think that's where, I'm guessing here, Moderna will show us their, um, Moderna Merck, their uh, mRNA vaccine for cancer, which has headline positive data. So right. let's look at the detail. And the next big one would be ASCO in one of my favorite cities, Chicago. There you go. I mean, and these guys, they actually go work the entire weekend. I mean, who does that? Sam Fazelli, held, uh, he's head of European research for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's our senior pharma analyst. He's been doing it in the city of London for decades. One of the absolute best in the, in the business for Bloomberg Intelligence. We're going to have more coming up. This is Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. All right, this is a little awkward, Matt. You're a CEO of a company. Announced that you're going to step down. Your stock goes up 10%. It happens awkward? quite often. It is awkward. <laughs> and um, yeah, I always feel for the incumbent when that happens, but... It's a part of market life because it, it, it does happen all the time. You know, early in my career, I was a star, I mean star research assistant covering the railroad and trucking industries. And I worked for a guy by the name of Tony Hatch. Uh, he's a consultant and analyst at ABH Consulting. Tony, I know you know these railroad companies inside and out. Tell us what's going on at Union Pacific. Why would the stock surge 10% when the CEO says he's going to step down? Well, first of all, I, I want to confirm that, yeah, you were a star uh, assistant. But uh, What does that uh, mean, by the way? Being a star research assistant means uh, he was good to bring on golf foursomes or what? <laughs> well, uh, since I don't golf, I'm, I'm assuming he took my place, and that was really, I would say, his number one skill. <laughs> exactly. There That's you go. That's what I figured. Yep. That's what I figured. I'm kidding. Um, Union Pacific, uh, well, you know, on a Sunday, right, the, the company tried to say this was part of a regularly planned issue they've been discussing going back in the early last year. Uh, so that if it's regularly planned and you have a task force assigned and you've hired an outside, you know, a, a, a recruiting firm, why would you release this on Sunday? And the answer is because one of their largest shareholders demanded that they do and put out an incredibly sharp letter that talked about how uh, Union Pacific, despite having what's well, well known to be the best franchise in the industry, has underperformed all of its peers in just about every category it chose to mention. Um, UP has had a long history of allowing great patience for its leadership. Paul, you can remember back to uh, the UPSP merger uh, when when you know, that you know there was a disaster, but the man the management team stayed intact. Uh, this time, I guess they've made it made a decision to change. It's the second time we've seen 
the board step in uh, over the actions of the CEO of Lance Fritz. They did this when they announced they were going PSR. He did not make that announcement, really. The board did. And then they brought in Jim Venna from Canadian National Fame to be the COO to basically supervise their transition to this new operating philosophy. Uh, it was expected that Venna might be making a play for the top job then, then being 2019. Uh, he did. He then left, and Lance stayed, making me think Lance was a pretty good uh, political infighter. Now, the, a major shareholder, Soraben, is saying that Jim Venna should take the job after all. So it's a little bit of a replay, only this time with a Sunday morning surprise that the board has agreed that if not coming, not taking the advice of their their shareholder to with with the person they picked but to make a change. It's, it's unusual. Uh, if you looked at the track record, maybe you wouldn't be surprised if you looked at Union Pacific's performance. But given the history of this company and their longstanding patience and uh, unwillingness to listen to outside advice, hmm. this is highly unusual. So what, what can be done at a Union Pacific? What do some of these shareholders want this company to change and perhaps prefer uh, improving performance and shareholder returns? Ask. Um, right now, you know, the, 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 this PSR, that, that precision scheduled railroading, has, has become a, a nasty phrase uh, after all the labor negotiations. Uh, it's even been related to the accident in Ohio, although it has, of course, nothing to do with that. But, uh, but the idea of bringing in an operating guy to solve problems here at Union Pacific, and all the railroads had service issues over the last 18 months, although they were almost entirely labor-related, uh, that is, not having enough crews, this is a, a, a gesture where Union Pacific is sort of ignoring the wishes of its regulator, the Service Transportation Board, which has painted the target of all railroad badness, if you will, on UP's back. And so if you were to bring in a COO as CEO, you would in its essence be saying we are a, an efficiency-driven way to get to shareholder value rather than a growth-driven. Lance didn't represent really either side of this ongoing philosophical debate. And, and Jim Venna, as a person, might not want to say he represents the operations side, but his resume suggested that. And then when he was brought up as the attack guy coming at Canadian National a year ago, when Children's Investment Fund highlighted him as the successor, uh, they, they got a lot of what they wanted, TCI did, but they did not get Jim Venna. One of the things mm. that TCI allowed to happen is have analysts say this was a move to pivot from growth to back to margin. And that is really not what shippers want to hear, and certainly not what the regulators want to hear. What Union Pacific needs to do is really take advantage of, its, of the many gifts it has, its incredible franchise. It seemingly never put it all together. There isn't a single you know, a silver bullet, oh, if they just fix this, they're back. But as you may remember, Paul, they, you know, they have the biggest franchise, you know, the, the connections to Mexico, widely diverse, all of the great chemical franchise. Not, not that that's a great topic these days, but they really control Texas. I want to ask about that. Not Texas, obviously, but Ohio. First of all, for those of us who don't cover the railroads for a living, how many big railroad companies are there? I mean, it seems to me that there are only a handful of them anyway that operate in all of North America. So you are correct. There are essentially, you could say, seven or maybe eight, but in the U.S. there are the big four. In the West, BNSF, Ber uh, that's Berkshire's uh, company, Union Pacific. In the East is Norfolk Southern and CSX. The Canadians go Transcon up in the top, and they both drop down through the center. CP soon to acquire 
Kansas City Southern will go all the way to Mexico City. CN goes all the way to New Orleans. You have another railroad of some size in Mexico. That's really it. But mm. keep in mind, you have a, a highly developed highway system. So right. the rails are often thought to be, they're called duopolies, and the STBs often use the monopoly word. But this is a duopoly that is losing share at, at, at present to, in, a, in a rising freight market, you know, forgetting today's economy, but over the last five years. And that shows you the importance of the highway. But, so, yes, there are many fewer railroads, but there's, the competition for freight is, is stronger rather than weaker. So what needs to happen from a regulatory perspective to make sure something that uh, we saw in East Palestine, Ohio, doesn't happen again? I mean, if it's possible, or, or, or was there lax regulation that led to the Norfolk Southern derailment that um, now seems to have poisoned an entire you know, region? So uh, it appears, it, you know, highly unusually, the uh, National the Safety Board and TSB released a, a preliminary report. That's unusual, but there was so much heightened demand for some kind of answer. That report says that although this was a, you know, a completely uh, solvable problem, they didn't exactly say how, and it appears that Norfolk Southern you know, did all, you know, played by all of the rules that they're supposed to have, including stopping the train when they heard. Uh, there, there will be some changes, most of which will not have had any impact had they occurred before this accident. In other words, ECB brakes, I'm getting into the weeds here, but a new kind of braking system is one of the things some have proposed. That has no impact. That would have had no impact on this. Changing how you label trains likely would have had no impact on this. It's not clear. The, so the solution to this highly unlucky set of circumstances is either letting railroads not carry this. Remember, they're not allowed to carry these goods. They're compelled to carry these goods. So allowing railroads the opportunity to say no, uh, to change how the supply chains for vinyl chloride are moved, that's a possibility. You know, it's not necessarily the ra on the railroad here, since they appear to have played by the regular rules. There is technology coming that will have a better system for understanding when bearings fail. This was a bearing in a single wheel set in a 149-car train that failed. Uh, it, they, they were aware it failed just before the accident. New technology could come that may allow them to have an earlier look at this. But in many cases, I think we're going to find this is just a set of completely unlucky circumstances. And the crew did the right thing afterwards. The responders did the right thing. We had no injuries, no fatalities. And I think actually what will ultimately be a solvable, although reasonably expensive, cleanup process. Tony, 30 seconds here. I'm looking at Norfolk Southern. They spent a couple billion dollars a year in capital expenditures. There's, is there a credible argument that they don't, as an industry, spend enough on safety? No. The, the, the idea here that they, that they don't spend enough and people talk about their buybacks and their dividends is really kind of uh, – it's like it's populist propaganda here. They, the rail system in the United States got a B-plus – the freight rail system, a B-plus grade from the American Society of Civil Engineers. Highways got a D. The mm. alternative to moving these goods – you take them off the railroad, well, they go on the highway on that D-rated system by, by engineers. Yeah. The railroads spend you know, massive amounts on a consistent basis on their network. Uh, the cars, in this case, are owned by shippers, but they are mostly the newer type of cars. You know, there really isn't a case that this was a you know, greed over people right. issue. That's just populism. I just wouldn't carry it. Yeah, well, you, you know? can't. Yeah, it's not a choice. Because All right, guess Tony, what? Plastics is not the key to the future. That's an option right there. <laughs> All right, Tony, thank you so much. Tony Hatch, he's a consultant and analyst for the transportation industry at ABH Consulting. He's been doing it for decades, covering the railroad stocks, the trucking stocks, the shipping stocks. Uh, good to get that uh, voice on.
Jill, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about the YWCA's Women's Empowerment ETF. Sounds fascinating. Sure, sure. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I was uh, formerly the Chief Innovation Officer for YWCA Metropolitan Chicago, and now I'm working as an advisor with YWCA USA uh, to continue to work on the exchange-traded fund um, that we launched in 2018 with, in, in partnership with Impact Shares, which is a nonprofit investment manager. Um, the goal here was to create... So hang on, Jill, just to be uh, clear, the YWCA itself released this ETF? We're the impact partner, so we uh, eat, um, impact shares released the ETF. They're the investment manager. Um, YWCA is sort of the consultant on the criteria that are used to evaluate the companies um, that are focused on women's empowerment uh, policies and practices that companies can um, can impose in their workplace. Um, and you know, with with over 160 years of experience in women's issues. Uh, the YWCA lends their leadership voice, data, knowledge, our networks, um, you know, to really um, make this an impactful investing product. Um, while we we use this as an opportunity to engage corporations on, um, you know, what policies and practices they can uh, implement that will really impact women in the workplace, and as a tool to educate um, investors and the general public, uh, just you know, people in general on the importance of these different criteria and how you can make an impact with your money. I would guess that number one, by a long shot, is having decent maternity leave policies. <laughs> and then I would guess that number two is on-site daycare and that everything else is way far behind that. Am I, am I onto something here? <laughs> Those are definitely things we would like to see uh, corporations and all businesses um, uh, implement in their workforce. Um, but we look at, uh, the, the product itself uses um, Equileap uh, Research, and Equileap is a, a gender equity um, research company in the Netherlands, uh, and they look at over 4,000 publicly traded companies. They look at 19 different criteria that empower women in the workplace, uh, and then that information is used by Morningstar to create the Women's Empowerment Index, which is used by Impact Shares uh, for the product itself. Um, so the Equileap criteria look at gender balance in leadership in the workplace, um, equal compensation and work-life balance, and policies promoting gender equality, as well as an overall commitment to women's empowerment and their transparency in that area and their accountability in that area. It would be nice within- to see, I mean, it will be nice to see the performance because mm-hmm. I imagine companies that pay closer attention, that do a better job of um, uh you know, keeping talented and experienced women on staff do better at business. Absolutely. I mean, what we see through the data is that, um, you know, companies that are inclusive and they incorporate these different criteria um, have great, you know, they're, they're more, they're much more successful. Um, They have lower turnover. They have higher employee satisfaction. Um, You know, it's just all the way around. Um, And, and things like, um, you know, we look at paid sick leave, the gender pay gap, the living wage. I mean, these are all things that not only strengthen um, the, the women in the workforce, but then also have the knock-on effect to strengthening the, um, the companies. Hey, Joe, give us an example of one of your holdings uh, and why, from uh, your perspective, it's in the ETF. Um, well, okay, we have, uh, let's say, um, Indivia. 
uh, is one of the top holdings right now. Um, and, you know, if they if they go out of their way, um, well, we, we don't think it should be out of their way, but we, uh, you know, to, to really implement, um, to be very transparent about their pay, um, their pay. Uh, they pay a living wage. Um, they have great um, uh, leave and work options. Um, so these are things that we would like to see more companies adopting and employees being more um, informed about so they can you know, ask their companies uh, to provide these, um, these things. We see these criteria as sort of a roadmap for both corporate America and employees. People, you know, if you're looking for a job, um, these are the things you might want to think about a company uh, having in place. It's, I mean, it's so interesting because I come from, I've been in Berlin for the last six right. years, right? And there they have what seems to me um, to be good maternity leave policy and paternity leave And policy. how long is that? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's 13 or 14 months. Really? Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, at that age, um, a kid is allowed to go to daycare, what they call kita, right? Okay. But here in America, where we have the worst maternity leave policies, <laughs> it's like one or two weeks. Um, and then, then, then you, you still can't send a kid to daycare or any kind of free education or, or, or babysitting for like five years. It, it's like right. the worst of both worlds in this country. And I just imagine that big companies could take advantage of that and, and outperform others. I, I see second among your holdings is Amazon, which is interesting because they've had this kind of anti-unionist slant. Um, why do you include them so highly? Well, it's, it's based on their score that they received from Equilief on the specific criteria. And, you know, we, we know there, there are issues with all companies, um, and not all of them are doing the most that they can do. Um, in some situations, you know, I hate to say, they're the best of the worst um, because they have the highest score among their peers in their um, particular sector uh, for these issues. And that doesn't mean that, you know, we let up on those companies and that we don't want to see them do more. Um, but the way the index is, or the way the product is constructed now, if, if they're in the top of their sector, um, based on these different criteria, um, they become a holding. All right. Great stuff. Really appreciate it. Jill O'Donovan, Chief Innovation Officer, uh, the YWCA, uh, I think USA now she's uh, advising on that. And they've got um, the this. name of the the name of the ETF is the Impact Shares YWC Women's Empowerment ETF. And the ticker is WOMN. W-O-M-N. So it's pretty easy to remember. And uh, if you go on the Bloomberg, you can find out a lot about it as well. Just type D-E-S, and then you can uh, click on the um, holdings tab to see which companies they're involved in, and you can see how they've done against other ETFs. I think it's a a really important tool, you know, in in the end to see how companies do that treat workers better. Yeah, exactly. And I'll be interesting to see post-pandemic when people have had a chance to work from home for multiple years and maybe a hybrid uh, type of arrangement or maybe just working from home period, will that put additional pressure on companies to up their game in terms of maternity care, health care, and, you know, just that type of thing? Right. Well, and hopefully uh, at the end of the day, companies that do a better job of um, employing women do a better job of making money. Yes. And that puts incentive right. into the others. Yeah. Right. So we'll have to see how that plays out, but certainly getting a lot of interest here, maybe even more so post-pandemic. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Everybody who's interested in the investment banking business, and you can count me at the top of that list, is going to be paying close attention to what we hear from our good friends at Goldman Sachs tomorrow because they're having one of their rare investor days where they trot their management teams out in front of investors and analysts. And our very own Allison Williams will be there. She's a senior uh, global banks uh, manager, asset manager analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. Allison, you've been covering these big investment banks for decades. You know, you know Goldman Sachs first as a competitor to them when you were at Morgan Stanley, now as, as, an, as an analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. What do you think this management team needs to get across to investors tomorrow? What's their strategy for having this investor day? I think a big part of the investor day will be trying to put some detail behind how they're going to achieve their medium-term targets. So Goldman Sachs, along with um, some other banks, last year, after a very strong 2021, raised their profitability targets. Obviously, it was a much different landscape last year. Um, many challenging areas, uh, fixed income trading um, was an area of strength, especially for Goldman. And um, I would say that uh, the cost ratio is really... I think where there's going to be a lot of focus. That's that's an area they they said they were going to miss uh, last year. There's a lot of concerns about what they're spending on comp, what they're spending um, to invest, and so I think from a metric standpoint, we're going to want to hear you know more about is is the sixty percent still a goal, and what does that look like for this year? And this unit. Um, the uh, AWM unit, which is, I guess, their asset and wealth management unit, is it so awesome? I mean, is it totally better than everybody else's asset and wealth management units? I think it's it's very different, and I think that is an area where they've executed well sort of against their plan, and obviously in the context of the environment. So, you know, the last investor day, they, they focused on a few um, big opportunities um, or the last investor day was the growth. first investor day, right? The uh, last investor day was the first investor day. This is only the second ever investment day that Goldman Sachs has been too good previously to have an investor day. If you want to buy the stock, you don't have them exactly. tell you why. You exactly. figure out why you should buy the stock. But now they're doing the work for you. That should be a sign enough. Well, I think they're trying to give a little bit more detail. And, and to your point, like when, when things are going well, and uh, and steady state, um, there there's less of a need to sort of put yourself out there in front of investors. I think when they wanted to talk about some of these pivots and give some detail around their strategy, I think that's that's what sort of led to the the first investor day. It's so and ironic, Allison. You 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 and Paul Shirley remember in Liars Poker. Um, there's a trader at Goldman Sachs who's doing so well that he can come to work without wearing a suit and tie. He comes in with jeans and cowboy boots, and he's allowed because he's doing so well. But at some point, he stops making money for the firm, and they're like, dude, 
put on a tie or you're out of here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is like the investor day. So, so Allison, and, and that's, by the way, so, I mean, I think that happens across Wall Street when people go towards more casual, when things are going well, and then everybody's got to get the suit <laughs> and tie, everybody's got to come into the office. And, you know, when performance is good, a lot of things can, can be ignored. Right. So, Allison, how about Marcus, their consumer banking effort? I, I'm not sure if it's deemed a failure, but it's, it's certainly underperformed. Where are... Have they completely pulled the plug on that? If not, how do they position it? So I think there there are elements of the you know consumer strategy. There, I think that they're going to continue. the The main product, which was always sort of a head scratcher, that you know what what why why they thought it was so special. I don't think anyone else thought it was a unique strategy. I mean, it was basically you know rolling up balance transfer. This is something that a lot of the um, card companies did in the '90s. And so it seemed like not really, um, you know, it, it, it was a little puzzling how they thought that was going to be sort of a differentiator or give them any kind of competitive advantage. And so I think, you know, moving away from that and um, and, and then there are some environmental factors. I get right? it, by the way, Allison, because at the time I thought, wow, Goldman Sachs. If I bank with Goldman Sachs, then I must be the very best. Like if I pull out a Goldman Sachs card when we're all vying over who pays for dinner, then I, I'm the man. You've made it. Right? And, 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 that, and that's, that was the idea behind the Apple card as well. Like, it's just the cachet of having it. Correct. And that, I think, is that's something that I think they're going to hold on to, right? Because in the credit card business, as, we, as I just said, balance transfer is one strategy. Another strategy is to offer, you know, to provide some sort of cachet behind the card, um, you know, when we look at things like the Platinum card or the Sapphire card, there's a lot of benefits, but it's also sort of the cachet of having those types of cards or other types of affinity cards, um, which kind of, I think, goes to Apple, where banks will try to leverage off of a, a strong name or something that, you know, the consumers have a strong affinity towards. Hey, Allison, David Solomon, the chairman and CEO of Goldman Sachs, how secure is his position, would you say, these days? I think that he has to instill some confidence again in in some of the, the the strategy. He can't. There are certain things, you know, the investment banking business. You can't. You certainly can't blame him for, um, you know, the fact that the industry had a significant slide of fees. There were almost no IPOs uh, last year. Um, but I do think that. You know, you can manage to the cost side of things. You can manage in terms of your investments. And keep in mind that the consumer business was not his, you know, that's something that he inherited as a CEO. So um, even though that, you know, a lot of pink fingers point to him, that, that wasn't necessarily sort of his, um, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't necessarily his initiative. He sort of came into that. But I do think that, you know, some in terms of managing the cost, managing the investments going forward, he does need to have a bit, a little bit more credible path. And, you know, they do have to think about what they're going to say. Most people, I don't think, expect a change in our return targets. It would be a little silly one year later to reduce those, but I think he does need to provide a credible path. Um, what about a change at the that. helm of Goldman? When you meet up with all the other uh, super bank analysts... Do you guys have like a betting pool on how much longer Solomon's got? I mean, I think that's that's probably not, you know, I don't think that's really the main focus at Goldman Sachs. I think that, you know, 
he's he there are very good stories going on there if you look at their trading business i mean they really have knocked the cover off the ball in terms of gaining revenue share there the investment banking too they've done a good job even though it was a bad year for the industry the m&a franchise which is you know that sort of very associated with the goldman brand i mean i think that's very strong i think when people think about the leadership across the global investment banks that that's not really the one yep. that people are you know necessarily betting on a change i think people are looking more towards um some of the other banks where there's been long-standing right. leadership and wondering when there's going to be a shift at those banks all right allison good stuff i know you'll be uh, downtown at the goldman sachs headquarters tomorrow with all the other financial analysts and investors uh, waiting to hear what we're going to hear from goldman sachs uh, with their investor day allison williams she's a senior global banks and asset managers analyst for bloomberg intelligence she's been doing that for decades she's got great perspective read her stuff on bi go a couple of months ago thanks to matt miller's contacts at ford i was able to test drive a ford f-150 electric truck and boy was it awesome i was really impressed but now we got a big take story here that tells you boy there's some Big issues with where the aluminum comes in this truck, and that's the subject of a Big Take story and a Big Take podcast. So let's go to Wes Kosova. He's the host of Bloomberg's Big Take podcast. So, Wes, I just kind of going through this article. It's fascinating reporting, as always. Fascinating photography, as always. Great graphics, uh, and it absolutely warrants being a podcast. Tell us about how Ford makes or gets the aluminum for its F-150 pickup trucks. Yeah, this uh, story is uh, reported by Jessica Price, it, Bryce in uh, Sao Paulo, Brazil, and Sheridan Impresso uh, in the U.S. And what they looked at was where does the aluminum on this truck of the future, as Ford describes it, the F-150 Lightning, where does it come from? And they were able to trace back a lot of the aluminum on the truck to uh, a mine and a, and a refiner in the heart of the Amazon in Brazil. And down there, there are thousands of people who are suing now for refinery, saying that the operation is really dirty and it is making them sick and that it is destroying the environment. And they trace the supply chain all the way from there up through Canada and then into parts suppliers and then to Ford. So, um, are those parts suppliers only selling this aluminum to Ford or is that, uh, is that aluminum only going to Ford? Cause other car makers obviously use it as well. And, uh, the, the, the material, I mean, and, um, is it just for the lightning because Ford's been using a lot of aluminum in the F-150, uh, for, for many years now? Yeah. A lot of the aluminum used in all kinds of products, um, you know, uh, soft drink cans, uh, other vehicles, a lot of the, the things we buy, because, you know, we use a lot of aluminum, comes from this same area. And there's a lot of companies, there's a lot of refiners. So it's not just Ford. The reason they focused on Ford were, was a couple of things. One is that supply chains are often kind of black boxes, as they describe it. It's really hard to find out the origins where stuff come, comes from, especially when you have a really long supply chain, like all the way from Brazil to the U.S., and what happened was the Lightning was such a big deal. When they announced it, everyone was so proud to be working on it that some of the parts suppliers said, hey, we're supplying our parts to Ford's new truck. 
And so they were able then to find out, okay, if these companies were sourcing it to Ford, where did they get it? And they were able just by looking through an enormous number of records and doing interviews to trace it all the way back. And the other reason they looked at Ford was that Ford described this as the truck that could possibly change everything. That you have a lot of people buying Teslas uh, and maybe they're really thinking about going to net zero in a carbon free future, but people who buy pickup trucks they need utility, they want power, and maybe the environmental thing isn't the top of mind. So if those people can be persuaded that an electric truck is a good thing, then you really shift away from gasoline eventually to electric. And so this futuristic truck seemed like a good place to really look at, okay, so how clean is it? So Wes, who owns this aluminum refinery? It's not Ford, right? It's, it's another company? No, it's another company. And it's uh, based in Europe. And the, the, the ownership of these companies is really long and involved, and you don't want to talk about it here. <laughs> uh, but Ford is really just getting these, uh, these parts from their suppliers. And I should say that the companies themselves, and this is what comes out in the story, the companies are following the laws of Brazil, that laws in Brazil over environmental regulations are pretty weak. And so the companies aren't necessarily breaking the law. They're following the law. It's just that the laws themselves don't enforce mm. environmental regulations that protect them. The other thing that we should really say here is the reporters went to Ford and said, hey, we found this out. What do you say? And Ford uh, immediately said, we did not know this, and we are now going to investigate this, and, and uh, we'll, so we're going to see what Ford actually does about it. They said that they had no idea that the aluminum was coming uh, from the Amazon, and that points up to another problem, is that these supply chains are so long that a lot of times your supplier says, yes, it's all certified, but you don't really look to see what about three or four suppliers down the line. Right. Well... And when you buy the truck, you probably, maybe if you care about the environmental impact, you look at Ford and maybe you look at a couple of their suppliers, but consumers obviously can't go that far either. I'm sure they'll be interested to read this piece. Uh, where's the, the good aluminum come from? Like if I don't want to poison people in the Amazon, where should I get my aluminum from? Yeah, this is a really um, big point. And this is something that I asked uh, both Jessica and Sheridan, the reporters on the story. And they said, you know, like, let's say Ford Really, they look at this and they say, yeah, we don't want to get our aluminum from this place anymore. That's the problem. There aren't all that many places you can get it. And so the conclusion that they really came to is that you're not going to just all of a sudden find new sources of aluminum, especially in the amounts that someone like Ford would need. You just have to do a better job of making sure the way you're getting aluminum is cleaner and that it's it's doing better by the environment and not just everybody kind of looking the other way. So and have what are the people down there in in Brazil really looking for? Are they looking for them to stop production, to clean up production, to change the government rules? So there's all kinds of things wrapped up in this because this has been going on for decades where mining companies had polluted water, had, you know, of course, we've all heard about the deforestation problems of the Amazon, ripping up trees and kind of ruining the environment. Uh, a lot of the water down there is just undrinkable. Uh, and some of the companies supply people who live there with bottled, bottled water because they can't drink the water. Uh, it, it's everything from people saying, you know, their skin is itchy to 
horrible birth defects that they claim are the result of these environmental um, practices. And so what they're looking for is redress to the, you know, the things they've already suffered and also uh, to stop it going forward. All right, Wes, great stuff. Uh, really appreciate it. Wes Kosovo, he uh, is the moderator for the host of the Bloomberg's Big Take podcast. And you can check that out uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And this uh, edition talks about, you know, sourcing aluminum uh, in Brazil. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.